as soon as I get a drink, I'm going to come. <coughs> there we go. We'll see how long that lasts. <coughs> Did the Steelers, the Steelers were way ahead. Did they end up winning? Anybody know if my Colts won? They went into overtime. Did they win in overtime? They went into overtime. I know that, but I didn't. I wasn't able to see if they actually won or not. So, good. They probably did get lucky, but little little luck goes a long way. So, well, tonight we were uh, we are in Jonah, and uh, we went to tackle the racist prophet. Um, if any of you caught the title of that, we will talk uh, just briefly about. Why, why I put that there, why I titled him that way. But let's open with a word of prayer, and then we will jump in. Father, we are thankful that you are our God. We're thankful for this evening that we can come and study your word and look at the, the life and ministry of this man, Jonah. Uh, Father, would your Holy Spirit come and teach us, uh, can convict us, confirm in us. Uh, Lord, we just uh, we pray that this truth would would set within us, that it would change us, transform us, uh, Lord, that we would leave here different than we came in, leave more purposeful, uh, more loving towards others, uh, Father, more intentional in our relationship with you, and uh, we just pray it all in Jesus' name, amen. Jonah, probably the best known of the minor prophets, I mean, everyone's heard of Jonah. I mean, you, you know the story, you know where he's, you know, uh, some of his background, what he was doing, uh, that sort of thing, more than you probably know Habakkuk, um, and because uh, no one ever talks about Habakkuk or really any of the others, but everyone talks about Jonah. We all know Jonah and the whale, a uh, little kid's story. Uh, they don't talk about uh, Hosea and his prostitute wife. That's not something we teach in the little kids growing up, but we teach them all about Jonah and the whale, um, which is interesting because it's not a whale. It's a big fish, a great fish. Now, it might have been a whale. We don't know, um, but it was a great fish uh, and not a whale. I remember telling that to my kids, and then they argued with their Sunday school teacher um, about it, and I realized I needed to be careful just how much I told them uh, as to what they were going to do with that. Um, <clears throat> so let's talk about the man, Jonah. His name means dove, and when we think of a dove, we think of a gentle bird, quiet bird, um, and that's really not the characteristic of Jonah. Jonah was not quiet. He was not gentle. Um, he'd probably been better if they named him Raven uh, rather than Dove. Uh, so this is one time where the name doesn't necessarily fit the character or the message even. But Jonah means Dove, um, even though he was not gentle. We know a little bit about Jonah from 2 Kings chapter 14. Um, he is mentioned there, 2 Kings chapter 14 Verse 25, I'll start in verse 23. In the 15th year of Amaziah, son of Johash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria, and he reigned 41 years. So we're talking about during the reign of Jeroboam II, Jeroboam, son of Jehoash. 
He did evil in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn away from any of the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he had caused Israel to commit. He was the one who restored the boundaries of Israel from Lebo Hamath to the Sea of the Arabah, in accordance with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, spoken through his servant Jonah, son of Amittai, the prophet from Gath-Hefer. So we know from there that that he, he prophesied during Jeroboam. So he actually was around prior to, before Amos, Hosea, and uh, Micah, <clears throat> the three that we looked at kind of as a group. Um, and he was the one that prophesied that Jeroboam would enlarge. Now, uh, <clears throat> that first one, uh, he went as far north up into Syria and south, even farther south than the Sea of Galilee or the Dead Sea. Farther south than the Dead Sea is the Sea of Arabah. Um, it's not on the map there. That map is uh, more with where he was when he was running. Um, we are certain that this is the same Jonah in Second Kings as the book that we have because it would be a very big coincidence for two Jonahs to be the son of Amittai and not be the same person um, because both of them mention that that's his father's name is Amittai. And again, we know nothing of Amittai. Um, that's not helpful in identifying him. There's nothing to go on. We know from Second Kings that his home was Gath-Hefar, or Hefer, or Hefer, uh, however you want to pronounce it. And it is a town in Galilee of the northern kingdom. And if you can see on the map, I know once you make a copy of a copy, it gets a little fuzzy. Um, but there by the A in, the, uh, <clears throat> in Israel... That upper dot is Gath-Hefer. And so it's, it's in the northern kingdom, far southwest corner of the northern kingdom. And so Jonah is speaking uh, of the northern kingdom when Assyria is gaining power and Assyria is about to come in. This is the time when Assyria is looking at, at world domination we've talked about and they're going to start with Israel and march right on through. So Jonah is being asked to go to, to Assyria, to Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, and speak against them, coming from the country that they are about to come in and overthrow. How many of you want that job? Okay, That's not, not high on the ooh, jobs you got to have, uh, jobs you want. Probably not going to pay real well either, <laughs> um, for that matter, for all the work that he's going to do. So he needs to travel up into Nineveh, up into to Syria. We can set the date at about 780 B.C., uh, knowing that Jeroboam was the Jeroboam II. Uh, we cannot be sure when the actual book was written, but we know that Jonah prophesied in that time. Uh, some say Jonah wrote it shortly after it happened, and so others say that a historian maybe wrote it years later, that Jonah did not actually write this book um, that a historian may have written it later. Um, either way, it's fact, it's truth, and we need to learn from it. Uh, regardless of who wrote it, the Holy Spirit oversaw the writing of it and inspired it. So, um, But Jonah, Jonah would have prophesied during that time about 780 B.C. Now, within the book, there are two miracles and a problem. Okay? And so we want to deal with those two miracles and we want to deal with the problem. 
Um, <clears throat> miracle number one. Did I give you what the miracles were? Bummer, because I was going to ask you. I was going to quiz you to see if you could tell me what the numbers were, what the miracles were. Miracle number one is that the, a fish swallowed a man. Okay, that seems like a miracle. Okay, that's not really so miraculous. It happens. Um, science has revealed that there are fish big enough to swallow a man whole. Um, the miracle is in what? He spit him back out three days later and he lived. Um, that, that would be the miracle. Um, so with documented evidence that there, there exists species of fish, not even just one, but there are, are large fish that are big enough to swallow a man whole, because some people would say, well, that could never happen. How could, you know, just, you know, scientifically, well, we have found species of fish that are big enough uh, to swallow a man whole. And, uh, and so this, this is possible. Uh, think, too, the effects of being in the belly of a whale or a big fish for three days. What does the human body look like after it has been spit back out onto dry land? After it has been simmering <laughs> or marinating in the digestive juices of a fish? Could be that God prepared a fish, that God just for this one, one time, could have been um, very much that that this one fish was prepared just for this one instance. So you get spit out, and you land on dry land, and you've got guck, fish, <laughs> all over you. Um, what the fish has been eating for the last three days, uh, partially digested, you are wearing it. Um, and uh, so, so that in itself is going to be somewhat of a, a miracle. Um, his skin would have been possibly uh, bleached through the digestive juices um, or even damaged. I mean, he could have seen, you know, sores and things like that as he was beginning to be digested. Um, you know, we don't know. Or God could have protected him from it. God didn't protect him from the fish. I don't, I think he probably gave him the full tour uh, of everything. So uh, that is one, one miracle. And really it's the minor miracle. Um, the major miracle is the sudden repentance of Nineveh. Uh, that, that here is a, a nation bent on conquest uh, has no knowledge of God, and one guy comes in and preaches, and the nation turns. Uh, the king, from, from peasant to king, repents uh, and follows after God. And so, but history also uh, points to occasions when an entire nation was brought to its knees in repentance. Um, it happened in the United States with the Great Awakening. Uh, where, where the whole culture was turned uh, through the Great Awakening. We talk about the Welsh Revival. Um, look, look down through church history, and there are instances where uh, you know,
know, entire cities, entire countries turned uh, towards God. Now, again, not 100% of people, but the culture was impacted. The culture was changed by the message. Um, and so there are two such, hist- history also tells us that there are two different instances where Nineveh may have been ready for such a revival. Because God's not going to bring revival. God's, God's generally going to send somebody in like Jonah when the people are ready. Uh, and so Nineveh pro- had to have been ready for something like this. They, God had been preparing their hearts, preparing their minds for this to happen. Uh, we read about it from missionaries all the time that, uh, you know, I know some missionaries go in and they work for years and years and years and years and years before they get their first convert. There's other stories of missionaries that go in and they preach one message and the entire tribe comes. The entire village comes to know the Lord. Uh, God had been preparing them for that time, for that message. And there are two instances in the history of Nineveh, and I gave you the kings, King, uh, king Adad-Nirari III. He was king of Assyria about this time when Jonah would have been prophesying. Um, and the Ninevites would have been prepared spiritually at this point um, because it, it shows through, the, through history books, ancient history books, that uh, there was a religious movement at that time toward monotheism. Now, monotheism is the belief in one God, which was rare in the Eastern religions. They usually had many gods, of which Israel, that usually got them in trouble. They worshiped the one God and Baal and the Ashtoreth poles and everything else. Well, each country tended to have their own gods. Well, it was at this point under King Adad-Nirari III that a movement of one God was taking place. And so for Jonah to walk in with a story of one God at a time when the people were already wrestling with that idea would have been perfect timing, would have been set up. That would have been miracle number two, that those people were ready for that. A few years later, which could also have been as a result of Jonah's, uh, if I ever called Jonah Noah, you know what I'm talking about. We're not talking about Noah tonight, but if I say Noah, you know it's Jonah, because I do that a lot. Um, and so when, when Jonah could have gone and preached, and then the years later, when Asher Dan III was king of Nineveh, um, they could have been psychologically prepared to hear the message. Because in the midst of all of that, there's also very much superstition in their religion. And um, now, again, I took this date, um, Dr. Dave Denyer. Um, how many of you know Bill and Donna Opperman, um, our youth pastor and his wife? Donna's father is Dr. Dave Denyer. He is a Christian archaeologist, has done a number of digs in Israel. Um, phenomenal man to sit down with at supper and ask the right questions. You only have to ask a couple, and then he just goes. Um, and you sit and listen, and you're done with dessert, and he's barely through the salad. Um, but he loves to talk about history, uh, and his, uh, he taught at uh, uh, Alliance Theological Seminary in Nyack, uh, New York, and uh, his specialty was Old Testament. And he gave Bill all of his notes from when he taught the Minor Prophets. 
I now have them in my possession. Um, as we are doing this, I said, can I borrow those? And he, you know, pulled them off the shelf, carefully handed them to me. Um, they're not handwritten notes. They are typed, but they're on a typewriter. Um, that's how long ago they were, they were done. So um, this is where I've gotten most of the, this background information is from Dr. Denier's notes. And uh, they actually have a date, June 15th, 763 B.C., there was a uh, total eclipse of the sun. And when that occurred and the lights went out, that would cause great anxiety in people from a spiritual, psychological standpoint. And so for Jonah to have come in and, and preached one God and that, that God will judge sin, as soon as the lights went out, everyone would be brought right back to that message. Um, and, and that would have because most people saw the total eclipse of the sun as the wrath of God coming. It was a warning that God was going to judge, that a God for them, it was just a God. And so <clears throat> those things would have made it perfect prime time for Jonah to have walked in with the message of God and, and sin and judgment and repentance and forgiveness and for Nineveh to be receptive to it. Um, so miracle number one, Fish swallowed a man, three days later spits him out and he lives. Miracle number two is that an entire nation like that would have come to know God, would have, would have followed after God. Then we also have a problem. Because of the way in which this story is told and the way in which it is, is written and kind of plays out, it's almost too perfect. And so a number of people, historians, say that Jonah didn't actually exist. It's a parable. It's a parable about God's forgiveness and God's mercy, that it really didn't happen. Now, the problem with that is if it didn't happen, then Jesus bought into a lie. Because turn with me to Matthew chapter 12. Actually, I have them written there for you, uh, but turn with me anyway. Matthew chapter 12, Jesus is teaching in verse 38. He says, Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a miraculous sign from you. We want to see a miracle. Okay, he's been doing miracles for eight chapters. Catch up, people. Um, he answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign. Okay, that was harsh. Pharisees, church leaders, we want a sign. We need to see something. And he said it is a wicked and adulterous generation that needs to see something. Um, so he's already off uh, on their bad, bad side. But none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now one greater than Jonah is here. So if Jonah didn't happen, if it's not historical truth, then Jesus' credibility is under question, and that's the one problem. Problem solved in the fact that it is true. We can bank on the fact that this is a true story, that it is historical fact. Um, and, you know, every once in a while there will be uh, different books 
of the Bible, different stories that people will say that's not true. That's not true. Um, some believe Esther never really happened. Uh, they believe that Esther should never have been in the Bible, that book, because one, God is never mentioned by name. You'll never find the word God in the book of Esther. Start Esther. Yeah, Esther is one. Um, even the book of James was almost not put in <coughs> for historical issues and authorship and things like that. So every once in a while, you'll find things. Understand, though, Jesus saw Jonah as a historical figure. And so we can um, speak to Jonah as, as fact. Um, and so we have to take it as fact. Therefore, we take it as, as something we can learn from. So what is the message? The message that, that we have, there are four chapters, and each one serves as a point and an outline. If you were to outline the book of Jonah, uh, this, this story that we have here, um, each chapter is kind of a separate point in the, in the outline. Chapter one, it's Jonah running from God. That's the first point. We see that he runs. Okay, so we have him, we have him running. Chapter two, he repents. He runs to God. Chapter 3, he is running with God. That is when they, he marches into Nineveh and he starts preaching throughout the city and, and God does miraculous things for the people of Nineveh. And then chapter 4 is he's running against God. Uh, he's running against God, which we will have a tendency to do. Usually on the downside of some great spiritual event, in our life, spiritual victory and overcoming uh, a ministry that just went exceedingly well. We hit a downside in our own life and we begin to doubt and we begin to and we might begin to argue. And this is where Jonah found himself on the downside, running against God in chapter four. <clears throat> now, it's interesting, too, that chapters one and three kind of go together and two and four go together. They're almost mirror images of each other. One from the negative side, one from the positive side. Chapter 1, he's running away from God. He re chapter 2, he repents, comes back to God. In chapter 3, he's running with God. He takes the call and he runs into Nineveh. And in chapter 4, he's then fighting again. It's, it's again his wrestling with truth, his wrestling with who God is um, in that. And so they, they kind of are, are mirror images. So let's talk just briefly about running from God. Um, again, chapter 1 and 3, notice the similarities. Listen to, look, listen to these words. This is how chapter 1 opens up. The word of the Lord came to Noah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Now, Okay, so then we know, belly of the fish, repent, spit out. Look how chapter 3 starts. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Okay, now he's kind of already given. Okay, he gave the message in, in one. Preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. You can see that they, they just kind of parallel. Once he did it wrong... Ran away from God, now he's running to God. Why did Jonah run? 
It's a big question we have to we have to know the answer to. Why did Jonah run? He didn't want to obey. Why did he not want to obey? Yeah, Syria, the Assyrians, they were it was the enemy of Israel. And what's going to happen if I go and preach there? Nothing good in his mind. There could be one of two things. Let's say they don't accept the message. What happens to Jonah? They'll probably kill him. Let's say that they accept the message. Then what happens? God forgives them. We can't have that. Jonah says we can't have that. Chapter 4. Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick, quick to flee to Tarshish. I know that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. This is after he just saw an incredible revival in a nation, in a, in a, in a huge city. And now he's saying, take my life. I, I, it's, not, it's not worth living. I don't want to live. See, we have to, and this is where I got the racist prophet. He hated the Assyrians. He didn't want them to come to know the Lord. He didn't want them to have the same benefits that Israel had. He knew that, that there was murmurings of the Assyrians coming and, and marching against Israel. He knew that Israel was not following after God at this point. And now you want me to go preach to them? No. Because I'm either going to die or they're gonna, you're going to forgive them. And I don't want either one of those to happen. Note the map. Look at the map for just a second there on that, that first page. Remember where Gath Hefer is? And it says that he went down to Joppa, which is just south. And he boarded a sh boarded, bought a ticket and boarded a ship for Tarshish. If you follow that dotted line, the best understanding is that Tarshish is all the way over in Spain. He went and was headed as far away as he could possibly get in totally the wrong direction from Assyria, from Nineveh. Nineveh was northeast. He was heading way south and west. Uh, he wanted to get as far away from there as he could. What did it get him? In my, my favorite line, I'm not a counselor, but I play one every once in a while. Um, someone's in my office and they say, this is the decision I make. And my favorite line to them is, how is that working for you? You know, when they, when they have just said what they're doing is, is against God's will, it's not biblical, but they just feel like this is the right thing to do. How is that working? For Jonah, okay, you're on the ship. Okay, you've got this guy comes on. One, it is amazing that he found a ticket. This is not the time of year for ships to be sailing to Tarshish. So the fact that he went and found a boat that was ready to sail was amazing. The fact that he found a ticket available to get on or, or could pay to even board it was amazing. Uh, probably not a passenger ship. It was probably more of a cargo ship, which we know they threw all the cargo off uh, during the, the windstorm. But let's say you're there. 
and this guy comes on and you're just, you know, day two or three and things are getting pretty boring. And so you strike up a conversation and say, hey, where are you heading? And Jonah begins to hem haw around about where he's going. And you talk a little more and you find out that he's running. You sense nervousness in him. And you find out that he's going way off, far away from Israel. <clears throat> and you ask him, how's that working for you? What does he say? How's it going for Jonah right now? Is he feeling relieved? Whew. Dodged one? Whew. Now I don't have to go to Nineveh? Mm -hmm. Guilty and scared. And does that not what disobedience does to us? It produces that guilt, produces that fear when we are disobedient. When we are outside of God's will, sometimes it produces guilt we're not even sure of because we don't really know why we, you know, sometimes we're, we're disobedient, not knowing that we're disobedient. It's not a intentional disobedient. The intentional disobedience always comes with guilt, always comes with, with disastrous things. It never works out. And Jonah was experiencing that. I mean, here he is on board and suddenly the winds blow up. There's a storm brewing. And the people are being superstitious or the gods are out to get us. And then Jonah then, okay, yes, it's my fault. And so they, you know, they've been throwing cargo out to lighten the load so they don't ride as low in the water and they can pretty much then just skim across the top with the winds. Um, they're dumping cargo, which is cargo that needs to get to Tarshish. People have paid for that cargo to get there. There's going to be all kinds of trouble when they get to port and some of those boxes aren't there. And Jonah's the cause of it. He knows he's the cause of it. And so he finally fesses up and they toss him overboard at his own, he said, throw me over. I'm the one that needs this, throw me over. And again, I can't help but think, he thinks, I might as well die this way. I'm still not going to have to go to Nineveh. I'm still not going to go to Nineveh. But I will take my chances. They throw him overboard. And God has been watching him the whole time. God has been following him. God is not only the God of Israel. God is the God of the sea, the God of nature. And he brings this big fish to swallow Jonah. Just when Jonah thought it couldn't have gotten any worse. I don't know if the Jaws theme was playing behind him. You know, dun, 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 or what. But here comes this big fish swallows him whole. No real record of Jonah inside the fish other than this prayer. From inside the fish, Jonah chapter 2, we get, this, we get this prayer. Because it's at this point, after the windstorm, after being thrown overboard in the belly of the fish, that Jonah comes to his senses. Okay, that's what it took. Here's the question. What does it take for you to come to your senses? I don't know anyone who's been swallowed by a big fish. But that's where Jonah finds himself in chapter 2 as he begins now running to God rather than away from him. I want to read the whole, the whole chapter. It's short, but I, I want to read it just to get what is going through Jonah's mind um, because he sees the folly in trying to run away from God. He understands that it's that disobedience. He understands that it is sin and in need of re being repented of. 
Um, even seeing that the dangerous situations was just God calling him back. God not allowing him to run. And that's somewhat comforting to me. That we have a God that we can disobey. That we have a God that, that we can choose to run in the other direction. And he follows after us. He doesn't let us run away. He follows us. And, and he's right there. And when the time comes where we broke and we go, you know what, this really isn't working out so well for me. He's right there. Kind of with the, okay, now are you ready? Let's, let's do this thing. He hasn't changed. He hasn't changed his, his feelings about Jonah. He hasn't changed his mind about Jonah. He's still, Jonah's still his guy to preach to Nineveh, even in the midst of the disobedience. So here's Jonah's words. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord as God. He said, in my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. Get, get uh, the character of God. In this. this is what we want to learn from chapter 2, the character of God. In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From the depths of the grave, I called for help. And you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the deep, into the very heart of the sea, and the current swirled about me. All your waves, all your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains, I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever, but you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. But I, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. Okay, now, he said this in the belly of the great fish, not after he had been spit out. Because that last verse says, And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. So he's speaking very positively about what is, you brought me, you brought my life up from the pit. My life was ebbing away. My prayer rose. Those who cling forfeit the grace. With a song of thanksgiving, I will sacrifice to you. Jonah is expecting to live. That's not the prayer of a dying man. That's the prayer of a man who is repentant from running to God and fully expects to live, to sacrifice again, to live his life for God in the belly of a whale, the belly of a big fish. He understood God's call, God's provision, God's grace, and God was going to spare him and see him through. That's faith. That's faith to pray that kind of, with that kind of expectation marinating in digestive juices of a big fish. He had no human reason to think he was going to survive that. He even talks about the waves crashing over him, the seaweed wrapping around his head. He explained drowning. Yet he had the expectation of living through that all. Uh, that is grace, and that is running to God. That is repentance. 
sorrow for what he has done, giving his life, expecting God then to move and, and to live through him. And so now he gets spit back up onto dry land, and now we are running with God. In chapter 3, we, we've already looked at those first three verses when God lays the call before him again and says, all right, let's go. And Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now he headed north and east rather than south and west. And God was going to do amazing things. Um, people have said that the best place to be is the center of God's will. Jonah discovered that. He discovered that in the belly of the whale or the belly of the great fish. And, and for us, not always the safest. Some people have said the safest place to be is the center of God's will. That's not always true. Nineveh was not a safe place. He was not going to a safe place, but it was the best place for Jonah to be, was to be in the center of God's will. Now, note the size of Nineveh in verse 4 or verse 3. Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go all through it. Okay, to walk through Nineveh took three days. So this could be like up to 60 miles from one side of Nineveh to the other, because you can usually walk 20 miles in a day. And so to walk through it took three days to get through Nineveh. That is a huge city. Some have said there were probably close to 600,000 people living in Nineveh. Yeah. Yeah, he talks about the 120,000 that didn't know their left hand from their right hand. And that's probably children, babies, infants um, that wouldn't have been educated yet. So if there's 120,000 babies, there's probably at least 600,000 people living in the city um, of Nineveh. Uh, it, it was a large fortified city. Um, somewhere I read, and I don't remember where, that the, the walls were so thick that you could run two chariots side by side on the top of the wall. Uh, so it's like a two-lane road all the way around the city on top of the wall. Very fortified, uh, huge city, lots of people. Um, and Jonah was going in to proclaim. Jonah, Jonah started into the city going a day's journey into the city, and he proclaimed, 40 more days and Nineveh will be destroyed. Okay, I have to think there was a little more to the message than that, than those that one line, but that's the one line we have. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth, which is mourning clothes, repentant. Uh, that was a sign of their repentance. So from the greatest to the least, after J Jonah preaches a very short message, 40 more days and Nineveh will be destroyed. And the Ninevites believed God and they, they turned to God. Um, God saved them, the Ninevites, the enemy of Israel, Israel, God's chosen nation, his children. He saved the enemy. Just as Jesus said in Matthew, where he, he said that, that Nineveh was going to, uh, the men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Noah, and now someone greater than Jonah is here. I told you I'd say Noah at some point. 
Jonah, and now someone greater than Jonah is here. And so this running with God brought an incredible revival. I mean, to be caught up in that, I mean, to watch people repent, to watch, you know, the times I've probably witnessed that the most is, is having been a youth pastor, either at a youth retreat or the life conference. The life conference is phenomenal. To watch God move among seven to 8,000 senior high kids and their adults, their, their adult sponsors. That I'm, usually I'm busy and, and not in the services, but I always make it a point because I know when that message is going to be preached, I show up that night. Because it is phenomenal to just watch those kids get up and move at God's calling. To, to watch the tears, to watch uh, friendships, you know, reunited. Uh, to, to watch kids make amends with God, to come before Him in, in, in true repentance. And to watch some kids, not necessarily just the repentance, but the, the call to, to full-time ministry as Dr. Bechtel was talking about this morning. And to watch, we, we usually have hundreds of kids come forward. And to sit there and just, I mean, that's a high that you don't come off of very quickly. And, and you just kind of ride that wave. And, and so to, to be there and see an entire city of once your enemies, now they're your friends. Come to know the Lord. How quickly he goes to chapter 4. The last verse of chapter 3 says, When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. And I kind of get it. From a human standpoint, that this enemy, you know, we want God to wipe them out. I mean, the disciples said that. They wanted fire and brimstone to come down and wipe these people out. God said, that's not what I'm about. I'm about healing. I'm about forgiveness. I'm about grace, compassion on them. So here we are in chapter 4, and Jonah complains when it's all over. He pouts when it didn't go the way he wanted because I think he kind of probably hoped that they wouldn't repent and God would destroy them in 40 days. That'd give him time to get out of there and then just let God come in and lower the boom on them. And so he finds himself out and he, he, he pouting and he says, Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. But the Lord replied, Have you any right to be angry? The answer is no, I guess I don't. I don't have any right to be angry. Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city. Okay, so he went out east of the city. Okay, that's not even in the direction of Israel. He's going farther east. And he says there he made himself a shelter. He sat in its shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. And the Lord God provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. 
But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm, which chewed the vine so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. God said to Jonah, do you have a right to be angry about the vine? The Lord said, you have been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? See, Jonah had forgotten that God created the people in Nineveh. They were his creation. He created them and he loved them. Even though they weren't following after him, he loved them the same way he loved Jonah when Jonah wasn't following after him. And so he brings this vine to provide shade and and Jonah's happy because the circumstances have changed and they're good now. And then the vine withers and he's back to being angry at God. How many of us kind of live our life that way? Things go well, God's great. Things don't go so well, and God's questionable. It never says what happens next. Right. So we don't really know what happened to Jonah next. What happened? You know, did he go back to Israel? We don't know. It's not there. There are some some theological teachings that we need to understand from this story, from from this life of Jonah, this this part of his life. And the first one is called universalism. Now, there's a wrong universalism in the fact that there is a teaching called universalism that everyone eventually will be saved, the whole universe. That's the universalism, that everyone will eventually be saved. That's not right. They're basically saying there's no such thing as hell and eventually everyone's going to get to heaven. Well, that would be great if it were true, but it's not true um, because that would not be in God's character to make it that way. Um, So it's not that erroneous teaching, but God is a universalist. God wants everyone to be saved. God is interested in saving everyone. God is not willing that any should perish. It is not the will of God, not the perfect will of God that anyone should go to hell. He allows it. It's the permissive will. He allows, permits it to happen. But his perfect will is to to spend eternity with every person he created. That's what he wants. Universally, God does God God does not see nationality. God does not see uh, gender. God does not see position in life. God sees people. People who are either obeying him or disobeying him. People who either have put their faith in him or who have not believed in him. And God wants all to come to know him. Jonah had to learn that in the belly of a big fish. Peter had to learn it. Do you remember the story of Peter in Acts chapter 9, 10, somewhere right in there? With Cornelius. Cornelius was a Gentile. 
and Peter was, was a Jew, and he didn't think that the, the Gentiles were worthy or right to receive the message of repentance and forgiveness. That was a message to the Jew, God's chosen. And, and during a, a vision, during a dream, uh, let down a, a large uh, sheet. And within there were all kinds of different animals. And said, eat whatever. Anything, it's all good. And that's when Peter went, you know what? It's all been created for God. Jew, Gentile alike is all good. And then he goes to Cornelius' house and leads Cornelius and his entire oikos, his entire household, uh, to the Lord. And so Peter had to learn it. Well, we too have to learn it. Because God is a universal God who loves everyone. Now that makes him unique from all of the other gods that are out there. Because if you study other religions, the gods are not universal. They are for that one and destroy the others. God's not that way. There will come a day of judgment, yes. But up until that point, God is not willing that any should perish. And so if God is concerned about the salvation of the world's people, then we should be too. And we should be involved in making sure that the world is evangelized. So when Jesus says, go into all the world and preach the gospel, go make disciples, baptizing them, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you, and lo, I'm going with you. I'll be there where you go. We need to take that very seriously. What Dr. Bechtel spoke about this morning. We need to take that very seriously. We need to be personally involved in the evangelization of the world because God is not willing that any should perish. Christian Missionary Alliance have some incredible works to Muslims, to reaching Muslims. And I know that we can fall into one of two camps. Muslims need to die or we need to love them. And there, there's not a whole lot of in-between thought. We need to be in the camp that God loves them. God loves them. He desires for them to come to know him. And Muslims are turning to God in the thousands are the stories that we're getting back from missionaries. Because Islam holds no hope, true hope. No, no hope for today. No hope for the future. No love. And God is all that. And so we need to be about getting the gospel out, getting, getting the, the evangelization of the entire world because God is a universal God. Second thing we need to learn from this is that God or we need to learn divine sovereignty. God is sovereign. God is in charge. Jonah learned you can't run from God because not only is he a God in Israel, he's also the God of the sea, and he controls the wind and the fish. And so we can run, but we're going to run right into him. Okay? We, it, it's kind of, I can't remember what movie we were watching, um, where it was actually a, a ghost. And the person that was running, they were trying to run away from the ghost. And every time they turned and ran through the doorway, the ghost was right there. So they turned and ran the other way. And when they ran through that doorway, the ghost was right there. That's kind of how God works. You run, and you're going to run right into him. 
You can't really run away from God. You can think you're running away from God, but God's right here. And you're actually running into the next thing that God is setting up to call you back. We can't hide from God. We can't run from God. God is sovereign. Uh, God is sovereign over history. It was the right time for Nineveh to hear the message. They were ripe. They were ripe to hear of one God who loves them. One God who would bring judgment unless they would repent and they could receive forgiveness. It was the time. We read throughout, even you know, in the book of Esther, uh, God, uh, you know, Esther was told, "For such, you've been created for such a time as this, that it is within God's sovereign plan that you do go and do this." Jesus, at just the right time, he was born. The, the, the whole world was set up perfectly for Jesus to come in at that moment. The way that the, the nations were, were working, the, the, the fact that Rome was in charge and Rome had built roads everywhere. Now they could easily get from village to village to village, which means when Jesus came and died and the gospel message needed to get out, it could now travel a whole lot faster and easier. Everything was ripe for Jesus to come because God is sovereign over time. He's sovereign over nature, sovereign over history. He's sovereign over me. He is in control. We have to give him that control, to give him our life, and that when he says go, we go. Knowing that he is a God of love, a God of grace, and he has an incredible plan. Third thing is redemption. Redemption simply means the buying back of something lost. We're redeeming it. We're we're bringing it back uh, to its rightful owner, its rightful place. Um, And so, one, God desires all to be redeemed. God desires everyone to be redeemed. God who is sovereign is not willing that any should perish. And so we need to begin looking at people as either the redeemed or the need to be redeemed. Those are the only two classifications God sees. The lost and the found. The believer, the unbeliever. Those are the only two classifications. And even Jonah, called by God to preach to the Gentiles, was an Israelite who was in need of redemption because he was running. He needed to be brought back. Brought back under the sovereignty of God. Brought back under the the will of God. He needed to be redeemed back. And God redeemed him with the belly of the fish, spit out onto dry land, re-given the commission to go, and he went. Jonah was redeemed. You and I need redeemed. The second thing about redemption is that God is a God of second chances. Can anyone relate to that statement? God is a God of second chances. Jonah needed a second chance. Remember the wording of chapter 1, 1 to 3, and chapter 3, 1 to 3? That was Jonah's second chance. Exact same commission. Go to Nineveh and preach it. Go to Nineveh and tell them who I am. Exact same commission. So the question tonight is, what do you need a second chance at? What have you been running from?
What call? What directive has God given you that you've been running from? Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's a ministry. You know, God's been tapping on your shoulder to get involved in this ministry or that ministry, and you've been reluctant. You don't have the time. Okay, that's running. You don't, you don't have the, the knowledge. That's running. I don't have the personality. Of it, that's running. Okay, Moses tried all that, all those excuses. And God met every one of them with, I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll see you through. I'll take care. I want you in this position. I want you to do this. God is a God of second chances. We need not run in the opposite direction. If we're running in the opposite direction, we can come back knowing that he's going to continue to call, continue to love, continue to use us. Third thing, Jesus experienced a redemption. Jesus was brought back. Um, as he was talking in, in Matthew, just as Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights, Jesus was to be in the belly of the earth for three days and three nights. Jesus went through his own redemptive process, his own being brought back to life, from death to life. Jesus had to experience that, that potential destruction by being crucified, being buried, and then after three days being redeemed from the grave. Not redeemed for sin because he was sinless, but thus he secured victory for all who would follow him through that redemption process. And we find that, you know, baptism is the symbol of that, that we go down in the grave, that we die and we are resurrected to new life. And so the fourth thing is that our redemption comes from Christ's redemption. That because Jesus went through it, we then can experience that redemption. 1 Corinthians 15 Verse 12 says, But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. Because everything we believe is based on the resurrection of Christ. If Christ was not brought back, if Christ was not raised from the dead, then we have no hope. Because the victory was secured through the resurrection. If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through one man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all died, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own turn. Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he, stand, when he hands over the kingdom of God to the, 
the kingdom to God the Father after he, was destroy, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. Our hope, our redemption is based on the resurrection of Christ and nothing else. That we are redeemed because Jesus went through that redemption process of dying, burying, and raised again. And that is our hope. That is our message. Everything can be redeemed, can be bought back, can be placed back into the will of God. Every life can be placed back into the will of God. And that's God's desire. So the people that we come in contact with, day in and day out, one of two categories, believer, unbeliever. Saved, need to be saved. Know the message, need to hear the message. We have the message, we have the hope. We are the Jonah. We need not run away, but run too. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we are thankful, again, that you are a God, that you have a plan. And the Father, you have included us in that plan, that we, like Jonah, have the message of repentance, the message of reconciliation, the message of redemption. And the Father, you send us out each and every day into a lost world that you desire to save. That each of us are, are here in such a time as this for the purpose of bringing others into the kingdom. Father, may we begin to see people the way you see people. Not for ethnic background, not for gender, not for position or, or power or lack thereof. But when may, may we see them as the redeemed or the need to be redeemed that you desire to bring them into your family. Father, give us that kind of a heart, that kind of a passion for lost people. Father, thank you that we are a part of the CNMA, the Christian Missionary Alliance, that takes that call very seriously. And that we are reaching into the uttermost parts, that we can partner with that, Father, give us a mind, give us an understanding for world evangelism, how we do our part. Father, till Jesus comes, may we be about building your kingdom. For it's in his name that we pray.